You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I am now intensely proud of Georgie Girl and intensely grateful that I got that sort of shot-in-the-arm chance. But at the time, the reviews came out. They were wonderful reviews. People wrote glowingly. But I was called in the press one day, the ugly duckling of the Redgrave family. Actress Lynn Redgrave, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. She was born into a prominent show business family in 1943, so it was perhaps her destiny to become a very successful, award-winning, acclaimed actress. Lynn Redgrave made her theatrical debut when she was still a teenager, and by the early 1960s, she had already appeared in several movies. It was her 1966 appearance, though, as the titled character in Georgie Girl that really catapulted her to stardom. Hey there, Georgie Girl, swinging down the street so But along with that newfound attention came what we would now call body shaming. Critics felt licensed to comment mercilessly on Lynn Redgrave's weight, her figure, her appearance. Redgrave struggled with bulimia. Finally, in the 1980s, she joined Weight Watchers, in fact, ultimately doing TV commercials for Weight Watchers. But now I can eat Weight Watchers cheesecake studded with bright red strawberries, moist Weight Watchers carrot cake jammed with raisins, and all the other divine Weight Watchers desserts. In 1991, she told her story in a book she called This is Living. And that's when I had the chance to meet her. So here now from 1991, Lynn Redgrave. I think this is the first book I've ever seen that has this this unusual dichotomy of being both memoir and and recipe or cookbook. Yes, yes, you said you told me earlier that you you've done every sort of interview from from thrillers and techno thrillers to cookbooks. Well, now this is is this a techno thriller cookbook? I think it almost is. <laughs> it, it, it it is an odd juxtaposition, I suppose. I think it is. At first, I wondered whether this was the juxtaposition it should have, but when I decided I wanted to write a book and I wanted it to be about my life. I didn't want to, at this point, write an acting book per se, but that my food compulsion and food addiction over the years, now gone, hence the book, uh, played such an enormous integral part of my life, of my growing up, my childhood with my sister Vanessa, my father, the grave, so much a part of my the way I dealt with life at school when I was a very shy and ungainly and un- rather unhappy kid, not without too many friends, uh, how it affected my acting career, how it affected myself, my marriage, my children, that that obviously seemed to me that that was the first thing I should write about, my life as it as food ruled it and how I then solved the problem. Now, if you're going to do that, then you'd better tell people, having read it, having you hope you hope your reader has found some inspiration from your story, you better then give them a lot of good, healthy tips. So I give them a lot of tips in the section called Challenges. Well, then having given them a lot of tips, better give them something to eat. So that was how we I came upon it. And um, I should also, for listeners who might wonder, and, I, and it's not something I'd ever thought of until the book came out, but it's come up a time or two, so I'd like to set it clear. Uh, I wrote This Is Living, first of all, I did write it. I didn't read it into a tape recorder. It wasn't (laughs) written by somebody else. Yes, I wrote it. And secondly, and most importantly, I did not write it in my capacity as spokesperson for Weight Watchers. They didn't ask me to write it. They didn't hire me to write it. They didn't write it for me. Having written it and having come up with a lot of recipes, I realized 
to my horror, that I was trespassing on their territory and their copyright by trying to ex make the exchanges right. I think, yes, Weight Watchers did save my life. Uh, but no, I don't have the right to just print their exchanges when I write a recipe. So I went to them, uh, having already sold the book to Dutton, having had the autobiographical part accepted, and said, uh, would you come in with me and help me compose these recipes? So I hope that sets any record straight about this being, oh, just another commercial, because it absolutely is not. You, are, are you the rarity, the person who actually endorses a product or service that they actually use? Uh, good Lord, yes, I am. I must be. I bet I'm probably an absolute number one in, in, in American advertising as far as that goes. Not to say that um, other people who do commercials don't believe in their product, but chances are they only began believing in their product after they began Signed selling the contract. it. <laughs> and, and I'm not knocking that. You know, we all got to make a buck and... Uh, Hey, you know, I'm sure a, a car is a nice thing to drive, but and floor polish is lovely. But uh, I had already, as I as I recount in This Is Living, I went to Weight Watchers after years and years of compulsive overeating, and after the birth of my third child, or rather after I stopped nursing her, we found that I could no longer go back to my previous starvation postponement diet of once a day eating and binging like mad on weekends. And I went to Weight Watchers because it was the only thing I'd never tried, and I knew you could eat three meals a day, and I knew it was real food. Uh, it wasn't packaged food. It wasn't funny food. It wasn't powdered food. It was real food, and I and that was about it. I knew that. I figured I'd lose the weight on it. What I hadn't figured was that I really could change a lifelong compulsive eating problem, and that I could actually be sitting talking to you today and and say I'm no longer a food addict. I no longer am a compulsive overeater, and I'm not a recovering food addict, which is an important difference. Does an eating disorder begin? Is there something? Is there something genetic, or or is it learned? Is it, is is it a behavior that 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 you acquire? Well, it's. I, I don't know all the answers to that. I think in my case, I, I began. You know, without. It, it's awfully hard not to become awfully simplistic and full of pop psychology when one talks about why one has a compulsion, why one has an addiction. Certainly, food does fill an emotional void for people who take to food. As uh, most people have taken to food have been lonely, have been shy, have been had low self-esteem, all of those I have, a, a very bad self-image. When I became an actor, I had a, a great self-image while playing the characters. One of the reasons, in fact, the main reason I became an actor was I thought it would be so wonderful the day and what exciting people one could be. I mean, there, there was no limits to what I could be. I, I still find that the most exciting part of acting. And although I now like myself and like my life a lot, I have a, a wonderful life, I still get that same kick out of turning into somebody else and the, 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 the road of, dis of discovery into their mind, their psyche, their being, and their look. Um, are they, how, how are they? Are they tall? Are they short? Are they fat? Are they thin? What is their voice? Uh, what are they? What do they eat in the morning? All of that is just endlessly fascinating. But uh, I, to go back to the business of of why does one then become a food abuser or have an eating disorder? If you abuse food long enough, obviously you keep going on diets, you keep losing weight, and you keep ballooning up, and one day. Maybe by chance, as in my case, you discover, for example, bulimia. And first of all, when I discovered it, I didn't think there was anybody else in the world who did that. I thought I'd discovered something miraculous. I think most people who fall into it think it is the answer to their prayers because you 
And it's a terrible, terrible trap and, of course, incredibly bad for you and a, a loathsome thing to do and something that is so loathsome you don't talk about it. You, don't, you can even cut off part of your mind to actually doing it. You just say to yourself, I don't do this. And by never mentioning it, you don't do it. You know, it's, it's extraordinary what the human mind pretend don't happen. So, so that was a very long-winded answer to your question about how do you develop an eating disorder, um, and is it genetic? I don't know that it's. I, I don't think anybody in my family. In fact, I know nobody in my family was ever bulimic. Um, as far as compulsive behavior, they say is somewhat can be kind of. I don't know about heredity. My father drank a lot. I ate a lot. I don't, don't know whether there's any connection between my father's drinking and my eating. I, I, I'm not so sure. <laughs> After this short break, Lynn Redgrave recalled some of the nasty things people said about her after Georgie Girl came out. Now back to my 1991 interview with Lynn Redgrave. There are those who, who question, though, whether any of us really needs to be thinned. I mean, you know, there was, a, there was a time not that long ago when it was very fashionable and considered very attractive for men and women to be a, a bit portly. Absolutely. Though, I mean, the, the great artists of the past, mm. you know, Rubens, for one, uh, just loved those, those lovely buxom ladies. And I absolutely would not want particularly women out there to think that, in, that my statement, This is Living, and my book, This is Living, is saying we must be thin. You know, I think that women have had a, a, a rotten deal on that through the media, through the mass media and advertising. Through what men have demanded. And, and what men have demanded, yes. We've, we've been led to believe that we're not perfect if we're not thin. I am saying in This Is Living that thin and being a size 8 is where I'm comfortable at 5 foot 10. I don't think you've got to be a size 8 or a size 5 or a size 12, anything. What you must be to have a fulfilling life and to be full of the energy that we need to do all the other wonderful things that, as women and men, we want to do. You must find a place of peace between the inner self and the outer self so that when you wake up in the morning and face yourself in the mirror and when you look in mind and are alone with yourself, which we spend much of the time being, we are happy with both the exterior and the interior. And for years and years and years... Uh, it was a bit, you know, when you go to the, I don't know if one does it anymore, when you go to have your eyes tested, when I was a kid, they used to sometimes give you eye exercises where you looked at one of those 3D machine things, mm -hmm. and they put two images, and they, they'd start off as a 3D image, and then they'd sort of turn a handle, <laughs> and the image would try to pull apart, and you had to frown and concentrate and try to keep the image as one. And that was a good exercise, they said, mm -hmm. for your eyes. Well, I felt for... 25, more than that, 37 years or 38 years, I guess I was 38 when I just, that the image outside and the image inside, I never could get them together, couldn't make it happen, except on the stage where I could be absolutely, or on film, I could be absolutely objective about the outer and inner character. I'm, that's sort of my forte is, 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 being a character actress, I'm at my best playing somebody very different from myself, as anybody who saw Baby Jane would know. Mm. That's what I'm the most comfortable with, is, play, is finding somebody who I can feel like and be like, and I'm absolutely super objective about being able to look in the mirror and say, yes, now that outer person is now the right inner person, and they all fit together, but I couldn't do it to myself. 
for years and years and years and serving is about, and I suppose I'm trying to... Uh, yes, it was a cathartic experience to write it, uh, but I would hope that people will identify with it and and in seeing it written down, maybe feel brave enough to speak their problems for the first time and in, once you admit you have the problem with it. Did, was was your ego thick enough and, and strong enough uh, when Georgie Girl came out that you could that you could read a review that mentioned that that pudgy poor uh, uh, Georgie yes. Girl no. and, you could, <laughs> and, and, and you could you, you were you able to separate they were talking about she was pudgy you're not pudgy it was it was horrifying I am now intensely proud of Georgie Girl and intensely grateful that I got that sort of shot in the arm chance that all young actors long for you know the film that just suddenly catapults out of nowhere and gives you that great rocketing chance. But at the time, while I was making it, of course, I loved it being with James Mason, Alan Bates, we had a wonderful director, Silvio Narizzano. That was heaven. Then it, when it came out, there was all that sort of excitement, but I, could, I had to sort of watch myself with my face half turned away. because. But then I could say, well, that's the character. Then, as you say, the reviews came out. They were wonderful reviews. People wrote glowingly. But they all talked about the uh, back of the bus you know she looks like the back end of a truck um she's uh, you know the, the, i was called in the press one the, the ugly duckling of the redgrave family the blacks the black sheep the black swan um you know the the um the plain one the plain jane everything and i did find it unbearable now i wouldn't have found it unbearable if i knew deep down in myself that's the character i have no personal vanity about who i play when I played Baby Jane, I don't mind mm. that there's bags under my eyes and I have a pot belly. That's Jane. <laughs> yeah. And I can be objective. That's because I'm now secure. But I wasn't secure then. I wasn't secure in who I was. And when I finally, I recount a little saga in This Is Living about going to the Berlin Film Festival and standing next to the screen, which is a very um, unnerving experience anyway because the screen's so big. <laughs> yeah. And so naturally anybody looks distorted on it. And I looked up at this very distorted, huge face, you know, five times bigger than me, which was me as Georgie. And that was the first time that I realized that other people saw me as I actually truly was. And that they certainly couldn't tell that inside, somewhere, in my mind and in my emotions, I was an actress who could be anything, who could be Juliet, who could be Medea, who could be Baby Jane, who could be Georgie, but could be all of those things. And nor could anybody I met see the sort of woman, young woman, that I wanted to be, that I thought I was. I was, but it was all under this heavy coating. And, you know, I dedicate This Is Living to my husband because I met my husband shortly after I made Georgie Girl. And I had just been on a crash diet and had got thin. I'd just begun my famous postponement diet. Learnt from my childhood friend, uh, Doris Langley Moore, a wonderful wise lady who told me about how she gave up smoking by postponement, just, you know, at lunchtime I'll have the cigarette. No, no, I'll postpone it till tea time, and that's how she gave it up, and that's how I was. But I met my husband, Thin, been indulging in abuse, and I say in my dedication of This Is Living for John as well, I'll have to read it because now I've dried up on it. I'll read it to you because I think it's really nice. And then if John hears this, he'll hear it. For John, who has opened my eyes to myself, who has been a part of every good thing that has ever happened to me and has loved me through fat and through thin. And you can't ask for much more than that. And um, I'd also hope that maybe I get a lot of letters from women whose husbands and loved ones 
do not um, love them through fat and through thin. They love them thin, they abuse them fat, they taunt them, they shame them. Mm. And I would hope that maybe, if, if, if I suspect that maybe mainly women will want to buy this book, but maybe some men will buy it for their loved ones, or their mothers, or their sisters, and perhaps they'll sneak a peek, and perhaps in doing so, uh, will take a hint or two, and a leaf out of my husband John's book about, you know, the more the more you abuse the person who is suffering, the more they they turn to their form of abuse on themselves. So perhaps it'll have a little message for men too. And besides, Dad has to cook sometimes, That's and there's true. some great recipes in there. That's, this is true. This is true. Lynn Redgrave died in 2010 after a long fight against breast cancer. She was 67. And you can get a copy of This is Living by Lynn Redgrave by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that, by the way, is also where you'll hear my 1993 interview with another popular personality who had to struggle with weight, comedian Louis Anderson. No matter how successful and rich and you know famous I became, it didn't make me any happier. So I had to find inside what was really important. And my 1992 conversation with Jenny Craig. People are always asking me, do you diet? I really don't diet. I eat everything I want, but I've learned to eat the things that are healthful. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the U.S. Senator who had to fight hard in 1991 to get his friend and former colleague, Clarence Thomas confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court my 1994 interview with former Senator John Danforth. After Anita Hill testified, he was totally shocked, and he came to my office, and just the two of us were talking, and he said, uh, you know what this is, Jack? This is a lynching. This is a high-tech lynching. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.